and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. At the Council of Ephesus, one of the heresies which was rejected that we didn't have a chance to talk about is called Pelagianism. And it was so different from any other heresy that there was a big point of a debate about whether it was indeed a heresy at all. So Pelagianism was not about the nature of Christ or the Holy Spirit or is the God, does God exist in Trinity or is he simply unity? Pelagianism is really about how God operates in our lives. So from the Orthodox perspective, there is a very mysterious, strange balance of free will on the one hand and the grace of God on the other. And what that basically looks like is that grace is necessary for anything good, that all good, whether it's prayer or a selfless act toward another or love itself, all of these things are actually God working in us and through us. That These are gifts of God, and even more than gifts of God, this is God himself being present in our lives, being present through us. So it's almost like it is God's love and God's goodness flowing through us. It is God's grace flowing through us that enables us to do anything good at all. But on the other hand, we're not like marionette puppets, where God just says, now dance, and makes us dance around. Instead, we have the option to say yes to grace, or to say no to grace. And this, this guy Pelagius found really crazy, did make a lick of sense to him. Pelagius, and we talked a little bit about him way back in episode 11, but Pelagius was a monk from Britain. We don't know where in Britain exactly. He came to Rome at the beginning of the 5th century and became a popular teacher in Rome. And Pelagius's basic theory, and this is taken from one of his writings that we still have, he would say that since perfection is possible for man, it is obligatory. So for Pelagius, you didn't need grace. You didn't need God moving through you to do good. What you really needed was a firm will and a good example. So Pelagius would say the church has had it wrong for a long time. It's not that when Adam and Eve fell away from God, our nature changed and we had a sort of inherent um, nature to rebel against God or an inherent uh, orientation towards selfishness or towards fear or towards wanting everything for ourselves or thinking about me, 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 me first. Instead, he would say, we just had a really bad example in Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve turned away from God, and that's all that humanity has seen ever since. So if you are, if you're trained in basketball, and the only style of basketball you've ever seen played is everyone on your team is always scrambling to get the ball and to run up to the hoop and shoot, then that's just how you think basketball is played. You don't have any other alternative models. But if one day this amazing coach comes along and he's like, hey guys, What if 
You work as a team. So you try and get the ball, then you pass it to this guy, then he passes it to this guy, and then he shoots. And suddenly this team is just dominating all the other teams who only just have each person scrambling to get the ball all the time. Pelagius is like, all we have is Adam and Eve's bad example of rebellion against God. And because that's all we've ever seen, that's all we know, that's all we do. But Jesus came not to destroy the power of evil, not to bring all people to eternal joy and peace and love and goodness and light, but to provide a really good example. He is the ultimate coach. He is the ultimate teacher. And his example is a life of obedience to God. So now that you have the good example, now that you have this other playbook from a different way of being human, all you have to do is read it assiduously, this playbook, and follow. Just do the work. So Pelagius writes in one of his letters, whenever I have to speak of laying down rules for behavior and the conduct of a holy life, I always point out, first of all, the power and functioning of human nature and show what it is capable of doing. Lest I should seem to be wasting my time by calling on people to embark upon a course which they consider impossible to achieve. So Pelagius wants to say, look, you have really underestimated the power of human nature. Humans are capable of achieving perfection on our own. So Pelagius says, if you are in a big Roman ship on a lake, a big galley ship, maybe occasionally you get a big burst of wind in your sails and you just start sailing at I don't actually know how fast ships go, 60 miles an hour, whatever, fast for a ship, you start sailing really fast and just gliding across that lake. But if there is no wind, it's time to get out the oars and do some rowing. And human life is the same for Pelagius. Sometimes you get a wind of grace in your sails and you are just moved towards deep prayer. You are just moved to sell your possessions and give the money to the poor. You are just moved to be absolutely loving and good to someone. But most of the time, you just got to get out the oars and start rowing. You don't need grace. You don't need God to do this stuff in you and with you and for you. You just need more willpower. So drop down on the floor and give me 20 push-ups now. So Pelagius is this kind of intense life coach who believes that perfection is absolutely possible. And the only reason we don't achieve it is because we're not working hard enough. Work harder, says Pelagius. And in a sense... Through that hard work, through working really, really hard, you will earn salvation from God. You don't need it as a free gift. You don't need his love, his generosity, his mercy. You need to work hard and earn it. And for Pelagius, to work hard enough is to earn your way into being a child of God, a member of the body of Christ, almost Christ's equal in God's eyes. And the rest of the church said, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense at all. How do you earn salvation? How do you earn infinite happiness? How do you earn everlasting peace and light and joy? How do you earn being treated by God like an equal or like one of his children? That's insane. That's like taking an ant and being like, dear ant, would you like to be the president of this Fortune 500 company? You worked really hard. You've uh, carried lots of crumbs uh, from the kitchen all the way over to this hole in the wall. And we really think that you could be the next phenomenal CEO and take, you know, GE to greatness or whatever. That doesn't make any sense at all. No matter how hard an ant works, an ant cannot be the CEO of a corporation. 
And no matter how hard a human works, a human can't earn their way to being like God being like, you know, you and me pretty much equal. I'm a big creator. You're a big creator. No, all we do is these like little teeny tiny acts of goodness, selflessness, love, prayer. And even those are impossible without God working in us and through us, says the church. Our only power, our only freedom is the freedom to say yes to God or to say no to God. And that's about it in terms of doing good. So in AD 410, Alaric, the Gothic general and leader, approaches the city of Rome, threatens to lay siege to the city, goes through complex negotiations in which the Romans are total jerks. They insult him. They are treacherous. They try and kill him. And finally, Alaric says, enough is enough we're coming in. So they attack the city, they enter in through one of the gates, and they sack the city of Rome. Anything that is expensive and portable, they export from the city. They just lay waste to lots and lots of buildings, lots of people lose their lives. The only buildings that they don't touch, for the most part, are churches. And even some churches have really big expensive things stolen. So Pelagius is there during the siege. And in one of his letters, he describes it this way. This dismal calamity is but just over, and you yourself are a witness to how Rome, that commanded the world, was astonished at the alarm of the Gothic trumpet. When that barbarous and victorious nation stormed her walls and made her way through the breach, where then were the privileges of birth and the distinctions of quality? Were not all ranks and degrees leveled at the same time and promiscuously huddled together? Every house was then a scene of misery, and equally filled with grief and confusion. The slave and the man of quality were in the very same circumstances. And everywhere the terror of death and the slaughter was the same, unless we may say the fright made the greatest impression on those who had the greatest interest in living. So Pelagius was one who had a great interest in living, and he got the heck out of Rome. He flees to North Africa, as did lots of folks from Rome, to Carthage, kind of the second city of the West at the time. And on his way to Carthage, he lands in the North African town of Hippo Regius, which is the second most important port in that part of North Africa at the time, and from there makes his way to Carthage. Now, the city of Hippo is where a guy called St. Augustine is bishop. St. Augustine had been born not too far away in Thagast in North Africa, had spent time in Carthage and later Milan and Rome, and had returned to North Africa in order to establish a somewhat secluded group of Christian thinkers and workers who were living in community. He was quickly ordained a priest and then elevated to be the coadjutor bishop of, of the city of Hippo, the co-bishop of the city of Hippo. And it was in this role that he was serving when Pelagius came to town. Now, the two didn't actually meet. Augustine was away from Hippo when Pelagius arrived, but Pelagius was kind of doing theology on Augustine's turf, at least for a while before he left for the Holy Land. This made Augustine aware of what Pelagius was thinking and teaching, and also of the work of some of Pelagius's students, and Augustine was horrified. Augustine is sometimes called the doctor of grace, and he has this just deep commitment to the idea that all the good that we do is God working in us and moving through us. In his early work, he has a lot of uh, a very strong sense of human free will. In his later work, that becomes more something like free choice. 
But regardless for him, this was so anathema, this idea that you didn't actually need God's grace to do anything good, that like God's presence was sort of irrelevant to whether or not you could transcend your own human limitations and be godlike, that he just, this drove him completely bananas. And he went on this campaign to let everyone know the depth of Pelagius's error. After much back and forth, after Pelagius defending himself, contradicting some of his earlier writings, uh, saying that he didn't say what he said, and then other people saying things that Pelagius didn't actually say and attributing them to Pelagius, there were several regional councils, they went back and forth, some said, ah, maybe he's not a heretic, others said, yeah, he's totally a heretic, but eventually... At Ephesus, this snowball that Augustine started rolling came to its conclusion, and Pelagianism was condemned by the church. The absolute official doctrine of Christians everywhere is that it is God moving in us, working through us. It is God's grace which actually accomplishes all these superhuman feats, these amazing things that humans are capable of, like love, like prayer, like goodness, like compassion— mercy, all of these things are actually the gifts of God working in us and through us, through his grace. Not only does this give credit where credit is due to God, this also means that none of us have to work to convince God to love us. None of us have to work to convince God that we are good enough to spend eternity with him. None of us have to work actually to do anything to change the way that God feels about us, because his love for us is absolute and infinite and eternal. So, Anyone who is leading a really awful life of murdering and robbing and stealing and so forth, God actually loves that person just as much as the person who is living an absolutely perfect life. And the only difference between the two is that the one who is living the perfect life gives a yes in response to God's love, and the one who is living a miserable life gives a no in response to God's love. And that is really the distinction. That is the freedom that humans have, and also the extent of the freedom. It is just the freedom to say yes to God or no to God. And all of this happens through grace. But this brings up a tiny bit of a problem. What about the saints? So in my tradition, we recently had All Saints Day, which is the celebration of all the saints. And in the popular imagination, the saints are the people who worked really, really hard, got it really, really right, and in a sense, earned their salvation. Now, I say that's the popular imagination of saints because that's not the doctrine of any church. That's not the doctrine of my church, the Episcopal Church. It's not the doctrine of the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church. That's not actually what a saint is. But this is kind of what we imagine saints to be. They work really hard, they earn it, and they are on the dean's list forever. They are eternal VIPs. They did the most for the church, they did the most for God, and they're getting this phenomenal repayment. Saints, in reality, are wildly different. So in the very early church, the definition of a saint was really easy. In its earliest instantiation, it was a holy person, a holy one, a hyos, someone who manifests God's holiness in their life. So St. Paul is constantly writing to the saints. And if you think about it, the people Paul is writing to, these are not just any old run-of-the-mill people who are like, yeah, I guess I believe in God, you know, whatever, I go about my business. They're not that kind of religious person. The people that Paul is writing to 
are really risking their lives. They're risking giving up everything to turn their backs on Greco-Roman society, to turn their backs on mainstream Judaism, and to worship this rabbi from middle-of-nowhere Palestine who died in the most humiliating, painful way possible. Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus as God, and everyone from all corners of society say, you people are insane. This is before the great persecutions, but there are minor persecutions in lots of places, including the ones that Paul himself conducted, rounding Christians up to be jailed, to be stoned to death, to be killed. So it is, in some places, a life-threatening thing to be a Christian. It is, in every place, a hugely humiliating, embarrassing, awkward thing to be a Christian. Because Roman society is so much about the paganism that exists as part of everyday life. Every civic obligation, every festival, every holiday, every time you go down to the butcher shop, you are participating in the worship of the pagan gods. And to turn your back on all of this really means to turn your back on living a normal life in society. But it's not even like the Amish who say, technology, cities, all the normal stuff, we're out of here, we don't do any of that. Instead, the Christians would turn their backs on all these things and still just continue to live in society. They would live this upright, moral, good, kind, selfless life, lives of prayer, lives of generosity, in the midst of the world, while the world said, you guys are a bunch of weird nutballs. So for many of the people to whom Paul is writing, they are literally saints. They are manifesting the holiness of God in their lives. God is working in them, working through them to show his holiness to the world. In a sense, this is what all Christians are called to be. All Christians are saints to the extent that they say yes to God, no to fear, no to selfishness, no to anger, no to greed, no to lust, no to gluttony, no to all these things that try and take hold of us and take us over, and yes to God, yes to love, yes to goodness, yes to him working through us, yes to his grace flowing in us and through us and out to other people to change the whole face of creation. That's what a saint looks like. So in the early church, there were saints who were living, these people who manifested the holiness of God, really should be every Christian. But then there were also these special saints who were witnesses. Now, the Greek word witness is martyr. When we think of martyr, we might think of someone who says, oh no, you you all just go out and have fun tonight. I'll stay home and do a lot of mopping because that's my lot in life. That has nothing to do with a Christian concept of martyr, that is not a witness to the love of Christ, nor is someone who decides to kill themselves so they can kill a bunch of other people, whether that is a religiously motivated martyrdom, a politically motivated martyrdom, that is not a martyr either. A martyr is a witness. So if you are going to testify in a trial, and the judge in Greek says, now, will the next martyr please stand up? He doesn't mean the next person who is about to die a grisly death, even though he's innocent. He literally means the next witness who's going to come up to the witness box and be like, yeah, I saw the car going 90 miles an hour. It hit the other car. The driver was clearly drunk. That's what a martyr is. It is one who speaks the truth on behalf of something else. So the martyrs in the early church 
were the people who, when the cops burst in, when the Roman soldiers burst in and said, who here's a Christian? They said, me. And when the cops hauled them away to the Roman prison, when the soldiers got out their spears and they said, either make a sacrifice to the God that watches over the emperor, or we're going to stab you. They say, go ahead and stab me. And the soldiers would say, no, 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 you don't understand. All you have to do is burn this one teeny tiny piece of incense. Say a one second prayer. We let you out of here. They say, no, stab me. They would not sacrifice Christ. They would not give up on saying Christ is the source of my joy, my good, my peace. They would not lie about Christ, but were true witnesses no matter what you said to them, no matter what you did to them. These were the martyrs, and these were the early saints which were revered by the church. So, martyrdom often happened in the back room of the soldier's precinct, but martyrdom happened maybe even more often in public, because the Roman Empire loved a good spectacle. So martyrdoms would happen in giant arenas full of spectators. These Christians would be torn apart by animals. They would be executed by gladiators. They would have to fight to the death, but they weren't skilled at fighting. So it was like hopeless for them. And their deaths were really public. Around this time, there were two really important popular schools of philosophy known as Stoicism and Epicureanism. When we think of Epicureanism, we think somebody who likes to eat and drink and be merry all the time, someone who reads Epicurious.com, or I don't even know if that's still a website, but like who's really into recipes, really into drinking, so forth. That is not what Epicureanism looked like at all. So the reason we use that term for the sensuous pleasures is that the Epicurean's goal was to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. But they did that not through enjoying the most wild luxurious, sensuous stuff you can imagine, but through total deprivation, such that they could experience pleasure in any place, and they could turn their back on pain and in any place. So they would never be suffering, always be enjoying, even being beaten up or dying of starvation or whatever. They'd be like, yeah, but the sunset's really nice tonight. However, that was a pretty tough point to get to. Very few Epicurean philosophers actually made it to this point where they just experienced pleasure in uh, the root canal and losing their keys and the tree falling on their roof. Normally they were like, ah, there's a tree on my roof. This stinks. Stoicism. Stoicism is not just being tough. Stoicism is another philosophy which seeks to make you invulnerable to suffering, invulnerable to pain. So it's less about maximizing pleasure than it is being apathetic towards any phenomena happening around you. So you're supposed to get the winning lottery ticket as a stoic and be like, huh, $2 million, whatever. And then you're supposed to be on a sinking ship and be like, hmm, sinking ship, whatever. Because you are so focused on the underlying wisdom of the universe, which orders all things. You're just thinking about the logos, the underlying wisdom 24 seven, and all these events happening around you. You're like, eh, well, well, part of the order of the universe, such is life, not a big deal, whatever. I'm fine. The ancient joke about the stoic was that he receives the winning lottery ticket. And he's like, 
hmm, yeah, whatever. Secretly, he's rejoicing. He stuffs it in his bag, and he's like, I can't wait to go cash this. And he gets on board the ship, and he's just contemplating the universe, looking out to sea. Everybody else is playing shuffleboard and drinking Mai Tais and so forth. He won't have any part of it because he's a stoic philosopher. And then the clouds gather, and he thinks, hmm, clouds, whatever. There's lightning, hmm, lightning, whatever. The ship starts actually, like, crashing about in the waves and starts cracking up and water starts coming in and he starts screaming like a child and running around and tearing out his hair like everybody else. Stoicism also didn't work that well. There were very few Stoics who were just like, yeah, kill me, doesn't matter. But all over the Roman world, you saw these Christians going into the arena. And before them had been a thief, and the thief is publicly executed, sobbing and crying with repentance begging for his life. There is a tough, terrifying, gigantic gladiator, and he is down on his knees, his sword is knocked out of his hand, and he is screaming and crying and shouting out his mother's name and begging for mercy, making promises to do anything if they'll only spare his one life. And then you see the Christians, and they're just singing hymns. Their faces are these masks of peace and joy. There is like light palpably coming out of them because they are so full of the grace and the goodness of God. They are not afraid of death. They're not looking for death, but they're not afraid to die. And so they face the bear, they face the sword, they face whatever grisly, gruesome death that the world, Roman world can throw at them, and they never stop being these pictures of absolute goodness and love. And so the entire Roman world says, I'll have what they're having. That looks phenomenal. That is what I want to be a part of, even if I have to die for it. And so Tertullian says that the... Um, he said something like the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church everywhere these martyrdoms would happen the church would start getting all these newcomers who would say like hey can i check out what's happening here because that looks phenomenal so all over the church you have the remembrance of these martyrs who died in witness to christ some of them were great political figures, high-ranking soldiers, great philosophers who would not renounce Christ when society turned against them. More were just kind of regular people, slaves, children, people who had no power in society, but who, regardless of what was done to them, would not renounce Christ, continued their witness to Christ. As time went on, martyrdom became more and more common, and so you got more and more saints, more and more martyrs, this great cloud of witness that Hebrews talks about, this great cloud of martyrs, those who are witnessing to Christ. But you also had people who were continued to be living saints, just like those Paul was talking to, those who were witnesses to Christ, not in, only in their deaths, but also in their lives, whose lives were pictures of Jesus pictures of goodness, pictures of joy, pictures of peace, and everyone around them had this palpable sense of what grace meant, what holiness meant through the lives of these holy ones of God. But neither category are the VIPs of the church. They're not the ones that built the most buildings or wrote the most books or did famous things. They're just simply people who said yes to God's offer of grace. Some of the saints happen to be recognized by others as these shining examples of God's holiness. The vast majority of saints are completely unknown. They were maybe known to their children. Maybe they were known to the neighbors to whom they were unfailingly kind, to the hungry whom they unfailingly fed. But they weren't 
famous in any sense, and yet they are the saints of the church. But none of these, in a Pelagian way, earn their salvation. None of them worked so hard that God was convinced to treat them with a sort of A-plus heavenly VIP status. None of these were people who earned anything from God or bought anything from God or convinced God to treat them in some special way. These were literally just people who trusted God, who opened themselves to his grace, to God working in and through their lives, to allowing them to reflect his holiness to others through their prayer, through their goodness, through their love, through their charity, through their kindness, through their joy. That's all a saint is. It's someone who is open to being the place where God is experienced, open to being a temple of the Holy Spirit, open to God's grace working in and through them. And that's it. It doesn't take willpower. It doesn't take superpowers. It doesn't take any sort of achievement. It simply is saying yes to God. And that's the whole definition of a saint. Okay, but what about praying to the saints? What about a special saint who can help you find your keys when they're lost and another one who will help you sell your condo when you decide to sell it and buy a bigger condo? What about patron saints? And what about the huge amount of devotion that the church over the last couple of thousand years has given to the Blessed Virgin Mary? What is all that about? How do we go from these are just shining examples of God working in people's lives to this seemingly very different phenomenon? How did that evolve? What is that? Next time, we will delve into these questions and more. So thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity.